Chapter thirty seven Part B of the Monastery by Walter Scott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty seven Part B. I endeavour, my father, said Edward, I endeavour to forget. But what I would now blot from my memory has been the thought of all my former life. Murray dare not forward a match so unequal in birth. He dares do what suits his purpose. The castle of Avenel is strong, and needs a good castellan, devoted to his service. As for the difference of their birth, he will mind it no more than he would mind defacing the natural regularity of the ground, were it necessary he should erect upon it military lines and entrenchments. But do not droop for that. Awaken thy soul within thee, my son. Think you part with a vain vision, an idle dream, nursed in solitude and inaction. I weep not. Yet when am I now like to lose? Look at these towers, where saints dwelt, and where heroes have been buried. Think that I, so briefly called to preside over the pious flock, which has dwelt here since the first light of Christianity, may be this day written down the last father of this holy community? Come, let us descend, and meet our fate. I see them approach near to the village. The abbot descended, the novice cast a glance around him. Yet the sense of the danger impending over the stately structure with which he was now united was enabled to banish the recollection of Mary Avenel, his brother's bride. He pulled the cowl over his face, and followed his superior. The whole bells of the abbey now added their peal to the death-toll of the largest which had so long sounded. The monks wept and prayed as they got themselves into the order of their procession for the last time as seemed but too probable. "'It is well our father Boniface hath retired to the inland,' said Father Philip. "'He could never have put over this day. It would have broken his heart.' "'God be with the soul of Abbot Engelram,' said old Father Nicholas. There were no such doings in his days. "'They say we are to be put forth of the cloisters. And how am I to live anywhere else than where I have lived for these seventy years I wot not? The best is that I have not long to live anywhere." A few moments after this the great gate of the abbey was flung open, and the procession moved slowly forward from beneath its huge and richly adorned gateway. Cross and banner, picks and chalice, shrines containing relics, and censers steaming with incense, preceded and were intermingled with the long and solemn array of the Brotherhood, in their long black gowns and cowls, with their white scapularies hanging over them the various officers of the convent each displaying his proper badge of office. In the centre of the procession came the abbot, surrounded and supported by his chief assistants. He was dressed in his habit of high solemnity, and appeared as much unconcerned as if he had been taking his usual part in some ordinary ceremony. After him came the inferior persons of the convent, the novices in their albs or white dresses, and the lay brethren distinguished by their beards, which were seldom worn by the fathers, bewailing the apprehended desolation of their ancient sanctuary. They moved, however, in order, and restrained the marks of their sorrow to a low wailing sound, which rather mingled with than interrupted the measured chant of the monks. In this order the procession entered the market-place of the village of Kennequare, which was then, as now, distinguished by an ancient cross of curious workmanship, the gift of some former monarch of Scotland. Close by the cross, of much greater antiquity and scarcely less honoured, was an immensely large oak-tree, 
which perhaps had witnessed the worship of the Druids, ere the stately monastery to which it adjoined had raised its spires in honour of the Christian faith, like the Bentang tree of the African villages, or the Plaistow oak mentioned in White's natural history of Selborne. This tree was the rendezvous of the villagers, and regarded with peculiar veneration. A feeling common to most nations, and which perhaps may be traced up to the remote period when the patriarch feasted the angels under the oak at Mamre. Footnote: It is scarcely necessary to say that in Melrose, the prototype of Kennaquare, no such oak ever existed. End footnote. The monks formed themselves each in their due place around the cross, while under the ruins of the aged tree crowded the old and the feeble with others who felt the common alarm. When they had thus arranged themselves, there was a deep and solemn pause. The monks stilled their chant, the lay populace hushed their lamentations, and all awaited in terror and silence the arrival of those heretical forces whom they had been so long taught to regard with fear and trembling. A distant trampling was at length heard, and the glance of spears was seen to shine through the trees above the village. The sounds increased, and became more thick, one close continuous rushing sound, in which the tread of hoofs was mingled with the ringing of armour. The horsemen soon appeared at the principal entrance which leads into the irregular square or market-place which forms the centre of the village. They entered two by two, slowly, and in the greatest order. The van continued to move on, riding round the open space, until they had attained the utmost point and then turning their horses' heads to the street, stood fast. Their companions followed in the same order, until the whole market-place was closely surrounded with soldiers, and the files who followed, making the same manoeuvre, formed an inner line within those who had first arrived, until the place was begirt with a quadruple file of horsemen closely drawn up. There was now a pause of which the abbot availed himself by commanding the Brotherhood to raise the solemn chant De Profundus Clamavi. He looked around the armed ranks, to see what impression the solemn sounds made on them. All were silent, but the brows of some had an expression of contempt, and almost all the rest bore a look of indifference. Their course had been too long decided to permit past feelings of enthusiasm to be anew awakened by a procession or by a hymn. Their hearts are hardened, said the abbot to himself in dejection, but not in despair. It remains to see whether those of their leaders are equally obdurate. The leaders, in the meanwhile, were advancing slowly, and Murray, with Morton, rode in deep conversation before a chosen band of their most distinguished followers, amongst whom came Halbert Glendinning. But the preacher Henry Warden, who, upon leaving the monastery, had instantly joined them, was the only person admitted to their conference. "'You are determined, then,' said Morton to Murray, "'to give the heiress of Avenel, with all her pretensions, to this nameless and obscure young man.' "'Hath not Warden told you,' said Murray, "'that they have been bred together and are lovers from their youth upward?' "'And that they are both,' said Warden, "'by means which may be almost termed miraculous, rescued from the delusions of Rome, and brought within the pale of the true church.' My residence at Glendearg hath made me well acquainted with these things. Ill would it beseem my habit and my calling to thrust myself into matchmaking, and giving in marriage, but worse were it in me to see your lordships do needless wrong to the feelings which are proper to our nature, 
and which, being indulged honestly and under the restraints of religion, become a pledge of domestic quiet here, and future happiness in a better world. I say that you will do ill to rend those ties asunder, and to give this maiden to the kinsman of Lord Morton, though Lord Morton's kinsman he be. These are fair reasons, my Lord of Murray, said Morton, why you should refuse me so simple a boon as to bestow this silly damsel upon young Benigask. Speak out plainly, my lord. Say you would rather see the castle of Avenel in the hands of one who owes his name and existence solely to your favour, than in the power of a Douglas, and of my kinsmen. My lord of Morton, said Murray, I have done nothing in this matter which should aggrieve you. This young man Glendinning has done me good service, and may do me more. My promise was in some degree passed to him, and that, while Julian Avenel was alive, when aught beside the maiden's lily hand would have been hard to come by. Whereas you never thought of such an alliance for your kinsmen, till you saw Julian lie dead yonder on the field, and knew his land to be a waif free to the first who could seize it. Come, come, my lord, you do less than justice to your gallant kinsmen, in wishing him a bride bred up under the milk-pail. For this girl is a peasant wench in all but the accident of birth. I thought you had more deep respect for the honour of the Douglases. The honour of the Douglases is safe in my keeping, answered Morton, haughtily. That of other ancient families may suffer as well as the name of Avenel, if rustics are to be matched with the blood of our ancient barons. This is but idle talking, answered Lord Murray. In times like these we must look to men and not to pedigrees. Hay was but a rustic before the Battle of Lancarty. The bloody yoke actually dragged the plough ere it was emblazoned on a crest by the herald. Times of action make princes into peasants and boors into barons. All families have sprung from one mean man, and it is well if they have never degenerated from his virtue who raised them first from obscurity. "'My lord of Murray will please to accept the house of Douglas,' said Morton haughtily. "'Men have seen it in the tree, but never in the sapling, have seen it in the stream, but never in the fountain. Footnote. The late excellent and laborious antiquary, Mr. George Chalmers, has rebuked the vaunt of the House of Douglas, or rather of Hume of Godscroft, their historian, but with less than his wonted accuracy. In the first volume of his Caledonia, he quotes the passage in Godscroft for the purpose of confuting it. The historian of the Douglases cries out, we do not know them in the fountain, but in the stream, not in the root, but in the stem. For we know not which is the mean man that did rise above the vulgar. This assumption Mr. Chalmers conceives ill-timed, and alleges that if the historian had attended more to research than to declamation, he might easily have seen the first mean man of this renowned family. This he alleges to have been one Theobaldus Flematicus, or Theobald the Fleming, to whom Arnold, abbot of Kelso, between the year 1147 and 1160, granted certain lands on Douglas Water by a deed which Mr. Chalmers conceives to be the first link of the chain of title-deeds to Douglasdale. Hence, he says, the family must renounce their family domain, or acknowledge this obscure Fleming as their ancestor. Theobald the Fleming, it is acknowledged, did not himself assume the name of Douglas. But, says the antiquary, his son William, who inherited his estate, called himself, and was named by others, de Douglas, and he refused to the deeds in which he is so designed. Mr. Chalmers' full argument may be found in the first volume of his Caledonia, page 579. 
This proposition is one which a Scotsman will admit unwillingly, and only upon undeniable testimony, and as it is liable to strong grounds of challenge, the present author, with all the respect to Mr. Chalmers, which his zealous and effectual researches merit, is not unwilling to take this opportunity to state some plausible grounds for doubting that Theobaldus Flammaticus was either the father of the first William de Douglas, or in the slightest degree connected with the Douglas family. It must first be observed that there is no reason whatever for concluding Theobaldus Flammaticus to be the father of William de Douglas, except that they both held lands upon the small river of Douglas, and that there are two strong presumptions to the contrary. For first, the father being named Fleming, there seems no good reason why the son should have assumed a different designation. Secondly, there does not occur a single instance of the name of Theobald during the long line of the Douglas pedigree, an omission very unlikely to take place had the original father of the race been so called. These are secondary considerations, indeed. But they are important, in so far as they exclude any support of Mr. Chalmers' system, except from the point which he has rather assumed than proved, namely, that the lands granted to Theobald the Fleming were the same which were granted to William de Douglas, and which constituted the original domain of which we find this powerful family lords. Now it happens, singularly enough, that the lands granted by the abbot of Kelso to Theobaldus Flammaticus are not the same of which William de Douglas was in possession. Nay, it would appear, from comparing the charter granted to Theobaldus Flammaticus, that, though situated on the water of Douglas, they never made a part of the barony of that name, and therefore cannot be the same with those held by William de Douglas in the succeeding generation. But if William de Douglas did not succeed Theobaldus Flammaticus, there is no more reason for holding these two persons to be father and son than if they had lived in different provinces. And we are still as far from having discovered the first mean man of the Douglas family as Hume of Godscroft was in the sixteenth century. We leave the question to antiquaries and genealogists. End footnote. In the earliest of our Scottish annals, the black Douglas was powerful and distinguished as now. "'I bend to the honours of the house of Douglas,' said Murray, somewhat ironically. "'I am conscious we of the royal house have little right to compete with them in dignity.' What though we have worn crowns and carried sceptres for a few generations, if our genealogy moves no farther back than to the humble Alanus Dapifer? Footnote. To atone to the memory of the learned and indefatigable Chalmers for having ventured to impeach his genealogical proposition concerning the descent of the Douglases, we are bound to render him our grateful thanks for the felicitous light which he has thrown on that of the House of Stuart still more important to Scottish history. The acute pen of Lord Hales, which, like the spear of Ithuriel, conjured so many shadows from Scottish history, had dismissed among the rest those of Banquo and Fleance, the rejection of which fables left the illustrious family of Stuart without an ancestor beyond Walter the son of Allan, who was alluded to in the text. The researches of our late learned antiquary detected in this Walter, the descendant of Allan, the son of Flaald, who obtained from William the Conqueror the castle of Oswestry in Shropshire, and was the father of an illustrious line of English nobles by his first son William, and by his second son Walter, the progenitor of the royal family of Stuart. 
End footnote. Morton's cheek reddened as he was about to reply, but Henry Warden availed himself of the liberty which the Protestant clergy long possessed, and exerted it to interrupt a discussion which was becoming too eager and personal to be friendly. End of chapter 37, part B.